Hello, my name is Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are authors, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what's the author responding to? What are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Nishanth Injum, who received an MFA from the Helen Zell Writers Program at the University of Michigan. He received a Penn Robert J. Dow Short Story Prize for Emerging Writers and a Cecilia Joyce Johnson Award from the Key West Literary Seminar. His work has appeared in the Virginia Quarterly, Zoe Trope, the Georgia Review, which won the 2022 ASME Award for Fiction for its publication of his story, Catapult's Best Debut Short Stories 2021, and the Best American Magazine Writing 2022. Raised in Telegona, India, he now lives in Illinois. All right, Nishan, I'd like to begin by asking about your writing process and experience. What's, what was it like maybe drafting the best possible experience? What changed and what didn't? And I wanted to ask you maybe a genre question, why you chose the story collection as your debut? So I moved to the, the U.S. Um, when I was 22. I moved here hoping to get a master's degree in computer science. And the whole goal at the time um, was for me to like just get a tech job that paid well and then you know send money home. Like I wanted to be the good immigrant in the sense that I... Um, I wanted to really free up some of the difficulties that my family was in. I I just genuinely thought coming to the U.S. would, would sort of allow me to do that. And so I had absolutely no intention of becoming a writer. I wasn't much of a reader either. I mean, I did read um, every now and then, but I was reading a lot of philosophy, a lot of German writers, uh, you know, like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, um, Goethe, and, and so forth. I wasn't much of a fiction person per se i wasn't just prepared for the experience of immigration and and how isolating it can be to be an immigrant in a country where you don't really know anybody where you don't have any family or friends and i say this often which is that um to be an immigrant uh, an an adult immigrant is to um lead a life with four senses instead of five there's that acute sense of loss. I don't just mean like loss of home or family, but but it, it just a loss of your own self and how you perceive the world. Um, for instance, back home, when I'm speaking with other people, or with, with any strangers really, I'm able to read them, able to understand what goes on in their heads. Uh, most of the time, because you can tell by the way people are nodding, by the way people are emoting, like, you know, if they're connecting with you or, or whatnot, or if where they might be potentially coming from. Uh, but here, as a an immigrant, I had absolutely no idea generally what white people were thinking or what Americans were thinking because um, because I didn't have any cultural context. I had no exposure to pop music um, because I was growing up in the small town. I had no exposure to some of the um, TV shows or whatnot because I didn't grow up watching TV. In many ways, I was like an alien, you know, entering this promised land. So. In in a sense, nothing I was saying seemed to translate out in the in the sense that my English wasn't very good. So I would have to constantly sort of um, retrace what I was trying to say, explain myself. 
because there's issues of accent, even if a casual encounter, like, you know, you go to a Starbucks and you, you say your names and it takes multiple efforts to get somebody's name right. Um, and all of that explaining, all of that version of like trying to make yourself heard, um, it is a, it is a loss of, of a huge kind. And, and, and then nothing that people were saying was coming into me like perfectly the way it should be. Like, for example, when a professor was sort of teaching, talking about, say, um, machine learning in, in, in school, some of the things that uh, he was saying sort of absolutely went over my head because, I, I mean, it's one thing to be able to read um, English um, and then, like, understand what is happening and another thing to actually um, follow um, dialects and conversation um, in real time. There's a certain amount of translation that happens um, as I try to put in, into one of the characters in the book, you know. <laughs> so there's that sense of casting away, a sense of being made into an island. I was extremely depressed. I graduated, I found a job, but I'd taken loans to come to the States and I needed to be able to pay them off. Um, and even though I wished to go back to India, I couldn't really because I had all these obligations. So my life became in many ways really miserable. And, and I think all of that really... Um, almost suicidal place. I think I started writing as a way to maintain sanity, really, as a way of preserving the past, my my past self, and also taking what little I had left of home, the home mm. that I still carried in my imagination, and then preserving it so I could at least hold on to that instead. So that's how I wrote this book, really. I didn't start writing because I wished to publish or wished to become a writer. I wanted because. I needed the book to keep me um, alive and, um, you know, in some ways, um, lead a meaningful life. So that is the writing process behind the best yeah. possible well, Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm really sorry about how, how to say it without sounding cheesy, like the dark side of the yeah. result of writing the collection. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it wasn't easy either because in the process of writing the book, um, I sort of experienced loss after loss. So um, my my mother died, uh, my grandfather died, my grandmother got dementia. Only my father was left, um, in like intact almost, uh, semi-intact. So in a sense, it's like there's nothing left of home as I knew it. So in the real world, I was experiencing all these losses, and and so I was like, um, really, really using the book as a way to think about what do I want these stories to do and what do I really hope to do with, with this work of art? And, and just being trying to be more proactive about um, how I can use art to bring meaning into my thinking life. So hearing you give the genealogy of your collection, I recognize some of the contours from the stories. Like, so, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, for example, Myth of Living, so the mother figure dies at the end of the, the, uh, the story. In, in many ways, it's drawn from my own life. Like when I initially wrote the first half of the story, I didn't know how to end it. And then, and then a few months later, my mom died. And then I, I knew I had to end the story. So it, it, it's in many ways, I think the arc of the collection mirrors the arc of my own life. It was my understanding that this is your debut, right? Yes, it is. Could you elaborate what about a story collection that made you feel like you wanted to write these kind of fragments of losses as your debut to introduce yourself as a writer to the literary world and readers? 
Um, yeah, I, I don't think I was writing them to introduce myself to the audience. I was writing them to cheaper myself. And, and also the way I thought about it was that um, it's one thing to to write your own paintings and call it, call it Barry and another thing to, you know, make it into art. So when I was writing these stories, I was thinking about um, them as in, in terms in the length of pages because I was working a day job and I had um, like not not a lot of time in which, you know, I could um work on like something as big as a novel. I mean, people do, but I was also somebody who's new to writing and I wanted to get better at my own craft. And I figured, we can say 20 pages that usually a short story um, you know, unravels in, in those 20 pages or so I thought I could pose questions that would maybe span the length of 20 pages for me to like come to a resolution or come to an answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, questions that deeply um, concern me. And then that's how I sort of came to short stories. And I've always actually wanted to write a novel. I began with short stories because one, it was easier for craft reasons um, <laughs> because, you know, it's like, you know, you could workshop it and whatnot with whereas with a novel, um, it's it's really hard. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge time commitment to ask other people to read your work or manuscript. Um, whereas with a short story, you know, it's more manageable for workshops and whatnot. Also, because I think I was taking different parts of my own um, life and then putting these fragments into these stories. So so I, I figured with a short story, I could do that. Whereas with a novel, it seemed like I would have to, I mean, this is the way I think, usually think about it, but with a novel, I thought I would have to live with the characters for years and years. I, I mean, even the, the story collection took me seven years. There were many stories that I wrote that took me like many, many years to actually finish. So I was living with these characters for all those years, but I thought with the novel, um, you really need to know every little detail almost of the lives of these characters. Um, that's that's how I felt about um, a novel back then. So but because of all of those things, I I, yeah. I was writing that just you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a question about your title, and after hearing you. Um, share your personal trajectory as you wrote the stories. I mean, if readers, listeners who have read the story collection will know it's quite melancholic. A lot of the story is very melancholic. But the title is the best possible experience. You know, it's, it seems to kind of contradict the the feelings of mm-hmm. uh, despair. And it's not all gloomy. But for me as a reader, I felt a, a sense of deep despair. And I wonder why you chose to name your collection the best possible experience and also why is that the last story? I'm very interested in order, like how you order stories in a story collection. Was that your decision to put no, it No, it was the- completely my decision. Uh, okay, yeah. Order was all my decision. The uh, title was also my decision. I, I would say um, I wrote the title story in the collection, um, the first draft of it somewhere in 2015, 2016. After I wrote the first draft, then I knew I had... Um, a justification for writing the collection. The way I think about stories is that um, there's already so much good literature out there, and I had absolutely no wish to add to that unless I had something to say. And I thought the title story would be um, the touchstone or the North Star towards which um, the collection as a whole would travel to, in, in the sense that all of these are stories of loss, of stories of Reckoning with at home that the characters have either um, left or or missed or you know or, or or even sometimes 
being unable to fit into um, a home or trying to, in some ways, resolve their own relationship with home. <clears throat> and also many of these stories, I think if you um, look at them, they deal with many social ills, um, like there's homophobia, racism, sexism, abuse. There's like all kinds of really horrific stuff, caste, um, caste abuse and, you know, casteism and, and all of that uh, and anti-blackness. And, and, and there there is something that's there in, in all of these stories, but I, but that's the reality of life for people living in India and also in the States and generally everywhere. So I, I thought, given so much ugliness, given so much horrific things that are um, there in this world, how do you find um, meaning? And how do you decide that it's okay to take up space to, to say, you know, I'm going to tell you some stories? And how do you genuinely... Uh, find meaning. The title story in my mind comes up with a justification for telling all of these stories. Um, so, as, so, which is why, as soon as I wrote it, I, I knew that it would be a collection, it would be a book. Mm-hmm. Was I'm sorry? Did you say that was the first story you wrote? No, it was. No, it was oh. not. The first story I wrote was uh, "Come with me." Come with me. Okay. So, okay. so I knew that I, for a long time. I thought that would be the first story, and then uh-huh. uh, yeah, the. The title story would be the last story, and I knew that a journey in terms of like progression from um, leaving home to having this um, sort of strange sense of home as this air that you breathe, mm-hmm. um, the people that you carry. Where do you consider home now? Out of curiosity, that's a difficult question to answer. Yeah. I'm married, and I have a two-year-old, and and so I'm build, trying to build a home in the suburbs of Chicago. The place still isn't real to me. Um, I've been living here for a while. Um, so home is for me, it's just the people um, who are in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I always consider home pretty fluid. And um, I'm always interested in this idea of an origin story because I'm not sure if I have a home yet because I keep moving around between countries. Yeah. But, but I ask that question as kind of like a prologue to the next question. You know, the word diaspora, it's been used a lot yeah. in, in literature and in academic studies. And I'll, I was curious about how you portrayed India, because like you were saying, everyone's always kind of leaving to explore opportunities in the U.S. In the story collections, did you always want to make India as a place setting, of, even as like a por- point of origins or a point of departure? And I want to ask how that placemaking complicates this notion of home, because your first story, The Bus, was really extraordinary to me. Like, it was kind of like a travelogue to someone going home, but the narrator seemed, there was a sense of unease as he's talking about um, a lost brother and meeting the parents again. So I wanted to ask you if, like, the narrators are always straddling between two countries and two continents and maybe even their relationships with each other? Um, I don't necessarily think of it as just straggling two different continents or, mm-hmm. or sometimes it could, as in the title story, it could just be like a, from the city where the narrator works to the, the town where his parents live. Mm-hmm. I I mean, it's sort of inevitable, right? I mean, that, that conflict between um, childhood and then youth and adult life. 
in many ways, I think um, we spend all our lives trying to resolve that conflict. So that's what it makes in, into the book. So the notion of home, as I see it, sort of comes from our sort of attempts to untangle that complex web from trying to make meaning because it's a, it's a loss. Um, for example, um, in the Summer's Awaiting story, the main character, Sita, she misses her grandpa and she can't quite, I mean, she works in Chicago and every year she takes these trips to go visit her um, tata. And these are trips of two weeks. And those two weeks are her only vacation from work. And she uses them to go visit him. And she doesn't have any other family. And there's somewhat of a rift between them. Um, but he is still her home. And the way that story unfolds for me is she misses the relationship she had with her grandpa as a child. And she knows she can't have that relationship, the same relationship as an adult. And, and, and it's a very tragic thing because we are loved very much as kids. Um, maybe it, it's, it's also maybe childhood. We, sometimes people have fond memories of childhood, not, all, not everybody, obviously, but, but most people um, have fond memories of childhood because it was one place where you were loved the most or as loved unabashedly. And then being an adult um, is in many ways a gradual diminishing of the love one can experience. And again, there are caveats to this, um, mm -hmm. right? It, you know, if you're a parent, then you know there's like, obviously you're the person who's giving the love. But what, what I'm trying to say is the, the stories or the notion of home, it comes from um, this essential conflict between childhood and then being an adult and, and how you navigate that. Because uh, nothing about adult life actually makes sense. We just pretend that it does. Yeah. yeah. As a writer and as someone who writes about my own parents' immigrant stories, I don't really want to tell their stories as a way for an assumed reader to learn something about them or about the immigrant experience. And I wonder, do you think of your story collection as somehow writing against that kind of tendency to flatten people's stories as, oh, this is an immigrant story. Oh, this is a story about um, bad assimilation process in the U.S. and the American dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a lot of art is sort of born out of this um, desire to not necessarily rebel, but but sort of move against established ideas and and to bring what you believe into like a proper shape, you know. And so that's that certainly I have I have had some of that. I wasn't necessarily you know impressed by many of the short narratives about immigrants. I found most of them flat. I found um again I'm speaking generally. There's yes. some very good writing um, out there, but yeah. for the most part. Um, a lot of immigrant fiction, I believe, is written, even when it's written by children of immigrants, it doesn't capture the interiority of an immigrant and the loss as acutely as I would have liked it to. And, and I wanted to write from that place because most immigrants are usually, um, they come for a certain purpose and, and then they sort of 
literally spend their lives while um while their children then usually t- you know take on they have that sense of agency and then they can they exert that sense mm-hmm. of agency to write stories of the parents uh, or you know that's that's a usual thing again um it's a general um very yeah. general statement yeah. there's exceptions of course so uh there's nothing wrong with that either i i just wanted to add my own sort of voice to it because i yeah. i didn't see um the interiority of my immigrant experience at least reflected yeah. and drawing upon parallels between immigration and even though some people might sort of categorize my book as about you know it's a story about immigrants and what not i think it's true but at the same time it's a kind of narrow vision because i think from a larger picture i think only five of the um 11 stories in my book are about immigration or six of them don't necessarily deal with immigration but they all sort of deal with fundamental human conflicts and if you think about immigration as this sense of movement from one place to another and i also see that movement um of the journeys that we go in life from childhood to being an adult as a similar movement because you're going from one land that where you know everything um or you are com- totally comfortable to another land the, um, the adult land where you think you understand it but then you don't really understand it until mm-hmm. much much years 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 later you do mm-hmm. you know so i thought it was really refreshing when i think at, at the the start you said you wrote the stories for yourself and um I love that as writing advice because when it comes to editors and peer review and workshop it seems like a lot of the comments are based on a particular ideal of legibility and so I'm really glad that you centered yourself you know cuz I I'm just trying to reconcile some of these like what what a workshop is supposed to function and for whom and yeah I'm still trying to figure it out yeah Yeah, I have a mixed feelings about workshop. I think um, I got some useful things out of it when I was in my MFA, but but I I don't think I would ever do another workshop. You know, <laughs> well, maybe It's... I can get you to a maybe a guest lecture at my MFA program. <laughs> um I think it's just damaging sometimes um, when you enforce like a kind of you know silence, and then yeah. you allow. Um, somebody to speak have you read this book called craft in the real world by matthew yes. mm-hmm. uh, that book is amazing and he has yes. brilliant ideas in, in in how you can um decomp yeah. actually yes i and the funny thing is a lot of people cite that book and still do i know yeah <laughs> so I, i mean yeah. i guess yeah i'm trying not to name names but it's also interesting to me when someone said that they they're teaching something but then the yeah. teaching doesn't actually reflect the 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 assumed practice that you should be doing so yeah yeah <laughs> so just maybe going back to an earlier statement when you said that you were exploring um topics on caste and racism mm-hmm. i i don't mean to like always create a binary between america and india because i think what you're saying is more complex and just the kind of geographic spaces but it's really interested in in your thoughts in your decision on when you're writing about these relationships um that have issues about anti-blackness and 
living in bad neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And because um was I think it was the the immigrant. Mm-hmm. Like there was a lot of different ideas on well-being, labor, and place. And I wonder what kind of dynamic were you trying to show? Because it it wasn't very simple. Sometimes I think how people analyze and interpret racism is very much based on geographic location. So I think how racism is perceived in the U.S. is very different on how racism is perceived in other parts of the world. But because a lot of the events were in the U.S. and your stories, what what kind of dynamic, what kind of political undercurrent discourse were you exploring? Um, in that story, the immigrant, um, there's racism and there's like anti-blackness. I mean, in, in general, I think there's a lot of anti-blackness within the Indian community and it has always bothered me. And I wanted to write about it because people don't admit enough um, to it, you know, to carry all those um, those shameful sort of prejudices. And, and it's also a reality. I mean, people do talk like that. Uh, you know, I, I've seen Indian people talk about not wanting to live in bad neighborhoods, but that's but I think it's just a pretext for it. saying, you know, I don't want to live near black people. Uh, and, and purely coming from this reactionary, bigoted sort of mind space where they just want to be safe and they're reacting out of a place of this perceived need for safety, which I mean, they're all actually already really safe, but it's just this narrative that they really believe and adopt and, um, and it's just self-perpetuating, you know? So I definitely wanted to, to put that in because that is the thing that I've seen. And, and the people who are doing that, if you ask them, do you think you're racist? Then they'll probably say, no, I'm not. <laughs> it, it's, it's like a total, it's like a blind spot, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, Many of the the things, stories in in the book, they have people um, who have those blind spots, and and I think I want I want people to see better. I want people to see themselves better. So I I thought I should include really all of those cases and just have have it be part of the story, or you know even if the direct story of the immigrant involves trying to just exist without money and just, you know, um, just trying to exist in this new country, I still felt it would be, um, it would be a total loss not to have that because that is the actual reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't name the story, but uh, the protocol, is it the one about the green car in marriage? Yeah, yeah. I... I think he even mentioned colorism, like the narrator couldn't possibly marry a woman who's darker than the man because yeah, yeah. then like, yeah, so I I was blown away by that. Just kind of, it was it almost seemed like an aside, but it really struck me that um, not only was it racism, but it seemed pretty patriarchal to yeah. even consider like the mother uh-huh. as being the the result of having born a darker child compared yeah. to the father. It was just so much. And that was a pretty short story. Many of your stories are so compact and contained. I, I noted a couple of times where some of the stories, we were waiting. We, I mean, as in the greedy reader, me, we were waiting for an event to happen. But some most of the times it was just kind of like speculation and wondering. Um, 
was it lunch at Patty's? There was this one event that we were waiting for. And then the way you choose to end it left me feeling a bit desperate to see what happened. And it was the same for the protocol. Yeah. Like he wasn't sure if he was going to reach out to the woman again, you know, after the whole interview yeah. when it came to the green card or the, their marriage. So mm-hmm. I wonder how you wanted to maintain some sort of distance or what were your thoughts and kind of leaving the ending what I consider inconclusive, yeah. but not that's not in a, a negative. Yeah, no, I, I, get what you, I get what you mean. Um, yeah. And I think uh, it comes from, from the sense that my sense of what a story is, when you are watching a film, um, the film just usually washes over you. You just sit back and let it all unfold in front of your eyes. You're not actually doing any work because all the, all of the scenes they happen as they are. You know, you, you see them happening. Whereas with the book, you, uh, the reader, are you're expected to do some of the work in terms of imagining how things are playing out. Somebody once said, uh, "It's like you're both the writer and the reader are both climbing a mountain, and and in both from different ends, and they meet at the top." Um, so some of that thinking was definitely there part of the book and then also because i don't necessarily believe in plot i don't believe in plot actually at all for example in the green card uh situation or or even at lunch at patties um what happens you know what okay what happened when did the white white boy arrive you know did, um, did the lunch happen i'm less interested in, in that than in mm-hmm. the actual movement that happened within patty within um mm-hmm. in how this event, this supposedly tiny event, induced a catastrophe almost in his in, in in the hearts of these characters. And for me, that moment is more important, or you know, or more revealing than any actual event that might happen. Yes. Uh, and so when it, when the story sort of stops there, I it's 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 for me. It's like you know, I I want the reader to. To maybe to look at stories not in terms of okay A happened and then B happened and C happened instead I want the reader to to go beyond the story and look into the hearts of the characters and mm-hmm. and, and sort of just feel the depth of um, the dilemmas. Yeah. So to me, that's what the stories that's what the stories are. If if a story is successfully resolved in some ways, I feel like um, there's nothing really left for the reader. Like I mean, a reader um, just moves on and, and I want the story to sort of linger in some capacity. Um, no, I love that decision. I I feel like that a lot of people might think it's a controversial decision, but I, I loved it. It's so memorable to me that way. That's why I, I felt compelled to ask you about that kind of craft decision. Yeah. And, and also like, you know, for example, lunch at Patty's. This is an experience that many um, Asian Americans have who grew up in, in America, they've told me, and, and I haven't, I mean, I didn't grow up here, but, but but my wife did. And she told me about the same thing either, which is that um, a lot of the times you expect these kids to show up and most of the time they don't. It's the reality, of which, which is that you come in expecting to be treated as an equal or treated um, to be sort of welcomed or whatnot. And you're never really accepted. You just, you just exist on the sidelines. 
in I, th- I think that's a really an essential part of the American immigrant experience, and I wanted to address that um, that that sense of aspirational whiteness that this family carried, and then coming to terms with um, how that uh, really blew up in their faces. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Patty, he was I forget. Remind me, he was a programmer, was he? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I want to spend some attention to the way that you describe tech and labor, tech mm-hmm. jobs and labor, because um, when I was in my PhD studies, I was really interested in this discourse called science and technology studies. And knowing that you, you're, are you still a coder? I was until a few months, uh, two months ago, I didn't quit. Uh, okay. Is that <laughs> For now. Uh, well, sorry? Is it good news? Uh, yeah, it, it is good okay, news. Good. I'm good. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm taking a somewhat of a break. Um, hoping to hoping to finish my novel. Uh, I have a contract and a deadline, so I'm like, yeah, uh, press for time. Yeah, yeah press for time. Uh, yeah, I'm also uh, hoping I, I, you know, I'm hoping I can find a teaching job and like never go back into software. Uh, okay. Let's let's see how things go. Yeah. I want to ask you a double question okay. because. I read a lot of novels set in contemporary Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it usually follows a particular formula that they're burnt out or like they're trying to do something big and use a lot of Silicon Valley rhetoric. Yours is maybe a more humane look at the the realities of jobs. Specifically, I remember in, in the bus, he um he he works as a is it like a tech operator on the telephone for Bank of America and then he sends his money home. So I want to ask you about this idea of tech in America and the possibility of jobs. And because also education is somehow intersected within these kind of topics, were you were you somewhat critiquing the American curriculum of how tech is taught? No. Um, okay. I, well, I'm, I don't know if there if I there's any there's some echoes of that unintentionally, but I, um, I don't think I was interested in um, sort of trying to dissect how tech is taught. I just think, I just think of tech um, and the sort of emphasis on tech as a as a distraction, actually, as a distraction from the real problems or the real concerns. Um, all of these jobs that are being promised or that are being worked for. For instance, in the bus, um, he works for Bank of America. He's off- offshore worker, and he's sort of moving buttons from one place to another, mm-hmm. based on the whims of the client who's sitting in America. You know, and and that's I see that a lot. I see that happening a lot. I've seen that um, in my years of working in tech. Sometimes you do really do a lot of development work and, and whatnot. But what I'm trying to say. Uh, trying to get at with that absurdity of that is that the tech industry needs bodies and you are just a body. You're just a, you're just somebody who who will do whatever uh, your overlord sort of commands you to do. And in, in exchange, you will be given um, a means of, you know, some means of living that are slightly better than, you know, what you can afford otherwise, you know? So it, it's, it, it's a it's a form of control that capitalism exerts on on, on us, and tech is just a newer instrument to do that. Mm-hmm. In, in, it might be a little easier on the eye 
you know, it might be easier on our bank accounts. You know, there may be more income coming in, but but you are still uh, accountable and you're still um, subject to the way they dictate. <laughs> I, I just remember one of your stories. I think it's the immigrant. It was set in 2010, I think, or maybe yeah. he had left in 2010. In yeah. yeah. And like one of the things that drew him or maybe it was like a yeah. reference to the rhetoric was like AI is the future. And um, because my partner works in the AI sector now, it seems like the discourse hasn't moved very much. They're still trying to push for this slogan that AI is the future. But it, I mean, in that story, 2010, it's now 13 years later and the slogan has remained the same. So I just wonder what what newness is there? And I think that I think the way you framed it was nice. That it's another form of capitalism that needs bodies. And I, and I like that. Yeah. I mean, some of the jobs, AI will make some of the jobs um, redundant, but then there will yeah. be other jobs in, 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 you know, in assisting the AI to make it yeah. a way to sort of push more people out existing work um, avenues, for sure. But, but that's just, that's just, you know, any, uh, capitalism refining itself, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Um so my last major question for you, Nishant, if you're able to share, I know you say you're working on a novel. Could you give insights about this novel? Uh, I find it really difficult uh, to talk about um, something when I'm not done. Uh -huh. but... Okay, you can just come back and talk to me about it. <laughs> okay, well, if you have me, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes, of course. I, I, I know writers have some sort, some superstitions know, it, about yeah. it. So I would just, it would just be an open invitation for you to come back. Uh, do you have a future date that it could come out to the world? Um, I'm supposed to turn in the draft by April of 2024. Um, and so it's coming up and so I'm like <laughs> scrambling at the moment. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking yeah. the time of your writing day to talk to me about your wonderful book. I, I love your book. I I hope that you come back on so we can talk more about about your decisions, your craft, and and the possibilities of storytelling. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time. <laughs>